This episode of Outlines contains descriptions of a crime which some listeners may find distressing, so, as always, discretion is advised. On the 26th of August 1967, a photograph was printed in the Reading Evening Post. The accompanying article led with the headline, Beenham Murder Barn Burnt Down, In the image, which is moderately difficult to decipher through a faded black and white scan of the paper, you see the shell of a barn building. It has a corrugated tin roof and tin sides, but the struts appear to be wood, dark in the photograph and already showing signs of charring. Below them, daubed like a watercolour, you see the haze of grey smoke and the flame, which is rendered no more than a bright white blur. In the foreground lies hay, still unscathed by the fire, which would soon burn the whole place to the ground. After what had occurred there, less than a year ago, on Friday the 28th of October 1966, the owner, Winston Jagger of Hall Place Farm, the land on which the shed was located, told the paper, I'm very happy to see it go. Memories of the murder linger on, and I am reminded of it every time I go into the barn. Although the cause of the fire was claimed to be the explosion of a stacking machine petrol pump, a member of the Jagger family was quoted as saying, Something from somewhere has been sent to do this. It is very queer. The fire at the barn, or cowshed as it was sometimes called in articles, could be seen to draw a symbolic line under the events of the previous ten months. Months which would see more murders than the small village of Beenham in Berkshire had witnessed in the previous 300 years. But what had happened there on that late, cold October evening in 1966 was yet to be solved. As a matter of fact, it would take another 46 years for someone to be convicted of the murder of 17-year-old Yolandi Waddington, despite the fact that her killer had already been sentenced in 1967 for not one, but two killings in the Beenham area. Looking back now, it's easy to ask how wasn't he convicted sooner? But to answer that, we need to ask ourselves... If we lived in a small, tight-knit community where everyone knew each other, would we suspect our neighbours of murder, or would we too be tempted to look outwards and seek answers elsewhere? I'm Jess Carter, and this is part one of my look into the Beanham murders on The Outlines podcast. Yolandi Waddington was born in the district of Maidstone in the summer of 1949 to parents Beryl and William Waddington. She had two younger brothers, Philip, 
born in 1952, and Giles in 1958. In 1962, William Waddington retired from the RAF, where he had served as a squadron leader. Following his military retirement, William studied at Cullum College of Education near Abingdon in Oxfordshire, before taking up a post at Hungerford's John of Gaunt Secondary School in 1964. Two years later, he left that post to move to Kennett Secondary School in Thatcham in Berkshire, where he taught maths and French. Between 1962 and 1966, the family settled down in Greenham Road in the market town of Newbury. Between 63 and 65, Yolandi attended school at St Gabriel's in Sandalford, two miles away from the family home. After leaving school, she reportedly did a few jobs, including working as a petrol pump attendant at a filling station in Newbury. She didn't overly enjoy the work, and her mother, Beryl, didn't like the idea of her daughter being a pump attendant. Yolandi was by all accounts a typical teenager. Her friend Angela told the Reading Evening Post that she was generous and warm-hearted. She loved running around on motorbikes and cars, but she would do anything for you. Angela also added that ginger-haired Yolandi was also very popular with the boys. She was a member of several youth clubs and enjoyed dancing, paying bi-weekly visits to a local dance hall. Until August of 1966, Yolandi was engaged to her boyfriend, 18-year-old trainee architect David Saunders. A neighbour remembered her as being a most attractive girl, going on to say she would talk to anyone. She was learning to drive a car, and I think it was her new boyfriend who had given her some lessons. She had bought herself an old car. The new boyfriend was Philip Swain, reportedly 10 years older than Yolandi and a storekeeper in a Newbury garage. In the autumn, Yolandi, who Philip said wished to be a children's nurse, found new employment at Oakwood Farm in the nearby village of Beenham, where she would be caring for the 18-month-old daughter of the farmer, Peter, and his wife, Rosemary Jagger. The couple, who had previously employed a few European students as short-term au pairs, hired Yolandi in October of 1966. A forecourt attendant at the garage where she worked remembered that she was a bit worried when she left the filling station, but that she'd come to visit a few days into her new job, and that she was thrilled with it. She apparently thought the Jagger's younger daughter to be really sweet, and was, perhaps not entirely accurately, boasting that she was allowed to stay out until 2am which was much later than when she was at home with her parents. Her employer, Rosemary Jagger, in turn said that Yolandi was a nice girl with a good background. After the murder, Rosemary was quoted as saying, She was a good mixture, fairly quiet in some ways and fairly adventurous in others. I would say that she was the typical young lady of today. She was learning her new job fast, and I think she was going to be quite good. The forecourt attendant at Yolandi's filling station job called her high-spirited, saying she would back-chat to any of the customers who tried to rib her. 
All accounts of Yolandi suggest that she was a confident, happy 17-year-old girl who was starting to explore her options in life. During her first week at Oakwood Farm, which began on October the 23rd, she started to settle into the pace of life in Beenham. On Thursday the 27th of October, when visiting Newbury to see her parents, she told her friend Angela that the people she had met were very nice to her. Rosemary Jagger remembered that on the Tuesday evening, Yolandi had surprised she and Peter by saying she wished to go for an evening walk down the remote farm road which led from their house. She claimed she liked a breath of fresh air in the evenings, and Mrs Jagger said she seemed quite used to doing it. The following evening, the same occurred again, and Rosemary said... She suddenly surprised me by coming in with her anorak on and saying she was going down to Aldermaston. Of course, I was amazed to think she wanted to walk two or three miles in the dark all alone, and I told her that while she was with us, she was our responsibility and she was not to go out on her own. However, later that evening, the Jaggers changed their mind and agreed that she could go out in the company of another girl, a German au pair called Elizabeth Roche, a language student at the Sorbonne who had stayed at the farm for a month during the summer holidays. The two girls walked together down the dark, remote and winding track into Beenham until they reached the Six Bells public house. One punter remembered them that evening, seated at a table in the pub for a while, before they headed home to Oakwood Farm. On Friday the 28th of October, following Elizabeth's departure for Europe, Yolande busied herself with that morning with writing a letter to her boyfriend Philip. In the evening, a little before 10pm, she spoke to the Jaggers, asking them what time the six bells closed, and telling them she was anxious to post her letter that evening. The couple were hesitant about her walking the lonely country roads on her own, but eventually they agreed, telling her to come straight back and giving her the key to the French windows to be able to let herself in. The accounts of this conversation vary a little from report to report, some claiming that Peter Jagger, who normally bolted the farmhouse back door before bed, left it open, awaiting Yolandi's return. Others say that she had only the key to the windows. At the inquest on the 15th of April 1967, Rosemary told of how she and Peter tried to dissuade her from going out by saying that she had only half an hour until the pub shut. Regardless, at 10.15pm, Yolande, who, despite the fact that it was a moonlit and cold night, was dressed only in blue jeans and a beige-coloured jumper, potentially with another sweater underneath, and a headband to keep her hair neat, started the ten-minute walk into the village. An article from the Reading Evening Post described Beenham as being a lonely village ringed by farm tracks which led in circles. Strangers are not often seen there late at night. Yolandi stood out as she entered the Six Bells that evening. A bus driver from Borghurst, five or six miles away from Beenham, remembered her, saying... I was with my wife Betty sitting in a corner of the lounge. We both saw the girl come in because we noticed how pretty she was. She had a letter in one hand and bought some cigarettes.
Margaret Woodbridge, wife of the landlord of the Six Bells, claimed early on in the investigation not to have remembered her. But later she changed her story, saying that Yolandi entered the pub at around 10.35pm and that she had nothing to drink, but bought a pack of cigarettes, sitting down to smoke one. She didn't stay for very long and left on her own without having spoken to anyone. Except for her killer, the people in and around the Six Bells pub that night were the last to see the 17-year-old alive. The next morning, Saturday the 29th of October, Rosemary Jagger awoke at around 8.30am, only to find Yolandi's bed empty and, concerningly, it did not appear to have been slept in. Adding to the worry, she reportedly discovered the back door was still unlocked. Despite this, they thought that maybe she was staying with friends, although Mrs Jagger was concerned enough that she called Philip Swain to ask if he had seen her, though he had no idea where she was. By midday, the couple, who had become increasingly worried, had contacted the police to report Yolandi missing. Peter Jagger said... We reported Yolandi missing on Saturday and we didn't think she had gone home. She had only seen her parents on Thursday night. Saturday passed by with no word from the missing girl and no sign of her, and soon Sunday came, and with it, a terrible discovery. In the cowshed at Hall Place Farm, which was run at the time by Peter Jagger's father Winston and situated next door to Oakwood, three men, farm labourer Cyril Pryor, Charles Pryor, Cyril's father, and nearby Marley Tile factory worker Alf Woodley, stumbled across some blood-stained clothing hidden underneath one of the many hay bales in the barn and the surrounding area. According to reports, this barn was known locally to be popular with what was described euphemistically as courting couples. It's funny how often these places are described as such, and I never know whether I should believe it, so I tend to take them lightly. The barn was a couple of miles away from the main village, and while you did have to pass Oakwood Farm to get there, the track was rough and unpleasant, and wouldn't have made for easy walking. Back on that day, Peter Jagger told the papers... Three of my father's workers told me they found some clothing. I went down with them to the cowshed, which is on my father's hall place land, and immediately recognised Yolandi's clothing. After seeing the garments, the men moved some of the hay bales around to try and find anything else that they could. Peter Jagger, who had been helping with the farm milking and had driven down to the shed as soon as he'd been contacted by the workers, left the barn and began to search the nearby area. He would later remember that it was only upon learning that Yolandi's clothing had been discovered that it occurred to him for the first time that a tragedy had occurred. Sadly, it wouldn't be long until his fear would become confirmed. Just a few yards away from the barn, he came upon a ditch. There is a black and white photograph of the shed taken at around that time. It's on a corner of a wide, dusty, muddy track set back a little from the road. 
the structure itself is half hidden behind a large bush, and it appears to lean slightly. There is no obvious sign of the place where Yolandi's body was hidden, but the area is very obviously scrubby and desolate. Laying in a nearby ditch, half covered in cattle fodder, but still immediately identifiable, was Yolandi's body. She was naked, although a jumper was knotted around her face. It was revealed after the post-mortem, which was performed by well-respected Home Office pathologist Keith Simpson, alongside pathologist Anthony Branford, that her cause of death was strangulation by a coconut fibre baling twine ligature around her neck. Her wrists had been bound with the same type of fibre. Adding to this, she had been stabbed twice, both superficially, once in her front and the other from behind, just below her left shoulder blade. Despite the early news reports, which were obviously playing a little guesswork with the particulars, there was no sign that she had been sexually assaulted. Her time of death was recorded as being at some point between 10.30pm and midnight on Friday the 28th of October. It fell to Yolandi's father, William Waddington, who was by this point beginning to appear tired and strained, to identify his daughter's body. In a statement given many years later, her brother Giles spoke about that day, saying, My father has the most vivid and emotionally distressing memory of being escorted to the mortuary in Reading and having to formally identify his daughter's mutilated corpse an activity that he wishes he had never had to perform, nor would wish anyone ever has to do. At the Waddington's house in Newbury, they had been busy with kitchen renovations. Part of the wallpaper was due to be removed to make room for the redecoration, and knowing this, Yolandi had been allowed to draw cartoons on the wall. The refurbishment would never be completed, and Yolandi's drawings never covered up. As William and Beryl Waddington sought to protect their two sons from the detail of their sister's murder, the family began to withdraw and close in upon itself. What happened to Yolandi was not a subject for conversation, and in 2012, Giles Waddington said that the event had caused emotional pain of an unimaginable scale to our family. As the Waddingtons attempted to privately cope with what had happened, police and press began to swarm the village of Beenham and the surrounding area. Early on Monday the 31st of October, Scotland Yard's Detective Chief Superintendent Wallace Virgo and Detective Superintendent Jim Boff, who had set up their base of operations at Newbury Police Station, visited the scene. Later, in 1977, Wallace Virgo would be jailed for 12 years after being found guilty of conspiracy and corruption, involving the taking of bribes from Soho pornographer James Humphreys. All in all, six former porn squad detectives received sentences totalling 48 years for their part in what the Crown called a deplorable web of corruption. 
while working as detective sergeant with the Obscene Publications Squad from 1964 to 66. It was alleged that Virgo took payments in order for shops to procure licenses to sell pornography. Despite his conviction in March of 78, having served only 10 months of his sentence, he was released from jail after three appeal court judges ruled that his convictions were unsafe and unsatisfactory. The appeal judges criticised the judge at the Old Bailey trial, saying that it was the sort of situation where a defendant left the court feeling ill-used and a butt for judicial rhetoric. They went on to add that Mr Justice Jones, in his summing up, had put too much reliance on the diaries of the former strip club owner, James Humphreys. In 2019, the Daily Mail would describe this as his conviction was later quashed on a legal technicality. Regardless of whether or not Wallace, or Wally as the press referred to him, was guilty, it was an ignominious end to the career of a man who had risen through the police ranks to the level of commander. In a 1966 photograph of Wallace Virgo, who stands outside the Six Bells pub with the head of the Berkshire CID, Detective Superintendent Lawson, both men look the height of 60s respectability in their knee-length black crombies and neatly knotted ties. And I'm not saying for a moment that he didn't do everything by the books or to the best of his ability while leading the Beenham investigation, but... Bear in mind that he had only just left the corruption of the obscene publication squad behind him when he arrived in the village. As the investigation got underway, the usual lines of inquiry were focused on. Plaster casts were made of tyre tracks visible in the lane, and the land was searched for missing items of clothing, and the contents of Yolandi's handbag. By Tuesday the 1st of November, murder squad detectives were using mine detectors to search for the blade used to stab Yolandi, which at the time they believed to have been a kitchen knife. Wally Virgo described this knife as being pointed, sharp on one side and ridged on the other. Detectives carried out an inch-by-inch -inch hunt of the now sealed-off land along the mile-long farm track between there and Beenham. At that point, the police were working on the assumption that she was murdered in another spot and then taken to the ditch where she was found. They were also looking into the possibility that, in part because of the distance between the six bells and, their, and the barn, there might have been more than one person involved in her death. On Monday the 31st of October, detectives from the murder squad visited the pub and spoke to the regulars there attempting to gain insight into whether Yolandi could have been there for a pre-arranged meeting on the Friday night. As well as the customers at the Six Bells, house-to-house -house inquiries began to attempt to cover anyone who might have seen something, however insignificant. One curious facet of this is that even so early on into the investigation, less than two days after Yolandi's body had been found, Wallace Virgo was already being quoted in the press as saying, This happened in a small village community, and the response to our inquiries is not what we expected. It's up to the public to help us solve this vicious crime. Already the village was closing in on itself, 
Out of fear, the residents were unwilling to admit that a local might be responsible for the murder. On the Tuesday night, a pack of cigarettes and a penknife, or at least a knife blade, had been discovered in the barn area. From then on, police worked on the theory that Yolandi's murder had been committed in the cowshed, and as a result, they began the process of sifting through heavy undergrowth, waterlogged ditches, and, inside the barn itself, 30 tonnes of hay, a very literal haystack, looking for any clues that they could find. Eventually, they discovered another pack of the same brand of tipped cigarettes, one of which was believed to have been purchased by Yolandi at the pub on the evening of her murder, as well as an earring, some loose change, and, close to the ditch itself, the keys to the Jagger's French windows. By Wednesday the 2nd, as Charles Hoyle formally opened the inquest into Yolandi's death, police were already considering the possibility of fingerprinting every man in Beenham, as well as their local lines of inquiry. By Thursday, the field of investigation had been expanded to include an Interpol search for the au pair Elizabeth Rausch, who left Beenham on the day Yolandi was murdered, as well as another au pair, Sonia Arvidsson, a student at a technical college in Sweden who had lived with the Jaggers between June and August of 1966. Speaking about this, Peter Jagger said, Sonia was with us from June until August, and she used to go for long walks in the country. No doubt the police would like to know whether she was ever accosted, or had seen any strange men loitering around in the vicinity, but she did not say anything of this kind to us. What he didn't mention is that he himself, despite having a wife and young daughter, had acted inappropriately towards Sonia on a number of occasions. These included a time when she had been bending over Peter's daughter's cot and he had grabbed her around the waist. Another incident where he had been caught lying in her bed and a third where he had attempted to take her top off in an unidentified wooded area. Much later on, when asked about these incidents, Peter Jagger claimed not to remember them, but said, I must have found her attractive. Despite his wandering hands, he claimed that he had never been inappropriate with Yolandi, and the main focus of the police's inquiry was that she had met her killer in the Six Bells pub, or the immediate vicinity. While the crux of the investigation did still focus on Beenham, detectives also began to appeal for a mystery hitchhiker who had been picked up early on the morning of Saturday the 29th, just about a mile away from the murder scene. The man was headed to London, although he'd only been taken as far as Barclay Avenue in Reading. From there, it was reported that he'd gotten a lift with a man driving a dirty brown estate car, which was over 10 years old, and had the figures 479 or 749 in the registration. The driver of the car was 35 to 40 years old, and wearing a Tyrolean trilby and a white rubber Mac, which may have been too big for him. He had a small face, a slim build and a pointy nose. He reportedly dropped the hitchhiker at Marble Arch, 
A few days later, the driver of the car was actually traced to a building site in London, and he told officers that the man he gave a lift to was between 22 and 24 years old, with a thin build. He wore a suit in a mottled pattern and a light-coloured shirt with thin stripes. The man claimed that he was a former merchant seaman who had been down to visit his girlfriend in Newbury. Normally, he said, he'd have stayed the night with his girlfriend, but that day he was heading back to London to see his doctor the following morning. Eventually the man himself would come forward voluntarily, but it transpired that he was not the same man who'd gotten a lift to Reading that Saturday morning, and, despite police appeals, the second, more mysterious hitchhiker appears to have never been identified. As the weeks began to pass with no significant breakthroughs being made, wells in the area were drained and searched, Police performed a second round of house-to-house inquiries. Dance halls where Yolandi was known to frequent were visited, as were working men's clubs and pubs in the area. Superintendent Virgo warned the public to be aware that the killer may strike again, and appealed directly to the villagers, saying, Please don't say that this murder doesn't affect you. Tell the police anything you know. Anyone who saw her in Beenham the week she was there should tell us. Any confidences will be respected. Anyone who saw her pushing a pram in the village, for instance, should tell us. The information might be vital. Around Beenham, fear hung heavily over the small population, but it was tempered with disbelief. Things like that didn't happen in their village. It must have been an outsider although privately police wondered whether that was indeed the case. On Tuesday the 22nd of November, with police very obviously having exhausted the usual lines of inquiry, a copy of a poster was distributed via the Reading Evening Post. Above a photograph of a seven and a half inch double-bladed penknife, thought to be the same as the murder weapon, the text read, Murder, Yolandi Waddington, to all males between the age of 16 and 50 resident in Beenham, voluntary blood sample. You are asked to attend at Beenham Village Hall on either Wednesday the 23rd of November 1966, between 6pm and 9pm, or Sunday the 27th of November 1966, between 10am and 3pm, and give a sample of your blood to assist the police in their inquiries into the tragic death of this young girl. This poster signified an event which was to be one of, if not the first of its kind in policing history. It had been established that on the beige sweater that Yolandi had been wearing that evening, not the one tied around her head, but the one discovered amongst the hay in the barn, blood had been found some of which was hers, some of which was definitely human, but from an unidentified source, probably, police supposed, from a struggle between Yolandi and her killer. Two local doctors, assisted by two nurses, were charged with taking the blood samples, which would then be labelled, refrigerated and taken to Scotland Yard to be examined in their forensic labs by Margaret Pereira, a principal scientific officer there, 
who had begun working for the Metropolitan Police Forensic Science Lab at Hendon in 1947. It was the first time that a woman had been employed on the scientific staff. By 1962, Margaret had developed a new method for investigating tiny bloodstains to determine blood type. This system was groundbreaking at the time, and the mass blood testing in Beenham drew interest from as far away as the United States, with the FBI requesting a full report on the conclusion of the tests. The system could, it was claimed, accurately identify any individual through his or her blood sample. Around the village, the initiative was well received. The Reading Evening Post spoke to a number of people to garner opinion. Fred Larkham, manager of the nearby St Mary's Farm, said, My view is that everyone in Beenham is doing his or her utmost to help the police find this man. I'm prepared to give blood samples, fingerprints, anything that will help. And I think that everyone in the village says the same. Cable layer Dick Scouse Moore of Rose Cottage said, If you have nothing to hide, you can't possibly object to it. The person responsible for this killing is a maniac. He must be caught. Motor engineer Tom Cooper of Park Farm said, I agree with it. I agree with anything that will help catch the guilty party. Anyone who refuses is being selfish and silly. The local people, I reckon, will see this as their chance to actually do something towards catching the man. On Wednesday the 23rd of November, with teacups carefully laid out on the green baize tables in Beenham Memorial Hall, the scene was set for the blood testing to begin. On the walls were posters for the girl guides, needlework, awards and certificates. A flyer advertised the week's film show screening, Strategic Air Command, followed by a Popeye cartoon. Usually, Oswald Johnson, the hall's part-time caretaker, told the papers, there were over 50 people in attendance at the film screenings. The previous week, there had been only four. Everyone here will be very glad when this is all finished, Mr Johnson said. I hope it will clear the villagers of any suspicion. Then people can walk around safely again. A photo from that evening, which I'll try and remember to put on Instagram for you, shows Jim Boff, Wallace Virgo, head of the Berkshire CID, Superintendent Lawson and an unidentified detective standing at a long table, boxing up labelled pots. There are at least 30 of them on the table, and according to reports, that first evening, 149 men turned out to provide a sample. Among them was Charlie Bradley, the Borghurst man who had been in the Six Bells with his wife on the night Yolandi was killed. He said, Although I live six miles away, I thought I would give the police all the help I could. The first person to be tested, Mr Basil Gordon of Wickens Corner, said, There was nothing to it, just a prick in the arm and a cup of tea. In the following days, what had begun initially as excitement and community spirit soon began to wane amongst the residents, and people grew nervous, worrying that the next they would hear was that someone had been arrested.
Over the two days, all but one male villager, who was in hospital at the time, gave their blood sample willingly. There was a gloom and a fear which hung over the small community. The wife of the landlord of the Six Bells, Mrs Woodbridge, told the papers, I think police are only doing the blood tests to clear the village. When they've done, they can concentrate on looking for someone outside. One local resident, Rose Rudrum, said, You can't live for years among people without knowing if one of them's a maniac, can you? While life in Beenham had already begun to move on, for the women of the village, an underlying fear remained, one which they were hoping the testing would dispel. With many of the male residents away at work during the day, the women were left to worry about their safety. Mrs Edith Weller, a recent widow, said, I've never known a time like this. Me? Go out at night? Oh no. My daughter lives near Thiel and I used to call around to see her some evenings. I don't anymore. I stay here by myself with the house locked up. At Oakwood Farm, where Yolandi worked, Peter Jagger claimed that his wife no longer felt safe walking down the path to her home. And neither, he said, did he, adding, we were all relieved when the police decided to take the blood tests. The village was now quiet as death at night time. When the Women's Institute met in the evenings, they collected each other by car. The two women who chose to turn up on foot were deemed brave for doing so. People bought dogs to protect themselves, and few would leave their homes at night unless they had no choice. Weeks turned to months, and despite a couple of promising-looking leads, no more was discovered which could help the investigation. The blood testing yielded a match to four separate men, all of whom could be ruled out for one reason or another. The police were bewildered. All the clues seemed to point to the crime having been committed by a local man. And yet, here was scientific evidence which all but ruled that out entirely. Despite the setbacks, investigations remained active. And at the end of January of 1967, one resident was quoted in the papers as complaining that police were still in possession of all of his work clothes. The man, Ronald Blissett, who spray-painted cars for a living, was forced to do so in his best suit, a charcoal grey single-breasted number. The police, he said, didn't believe that he had only the one suit. They, in turn, stated that his suit was taken to help us in our inquiries, and the inquiries have not yet been completed. In April of 1967, the inquest into Yolandi's death was concluded after hearing that almost 4,000 people in the area had been interviewed, and that while the case would not be closed until the person responsible had been traced, police still had no evidence that would link someone to the murder. The jury returned their verdict, finding that Yolandi had been willfully murdered by person or persons unknown. The date was April the 14th, 1967. But just three days later, on April the 17th, two shocking murders would occur in the Beenham area, 
and this time there could be no doubt that the culprit was local. This is where I'm going to leave the episode. Part two will be out in a couple of weeks time and I hope you've enjoyed this part and allow me the inclusion of a few solved cases in this series episodes. Thank you to everyone who has supported me over the past few months on Patreon, including She Who Watches, Cynthia Rayleigh, Brett Spurden and Brian Hearn. If you wish to join them and get access to all the Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes and other content, you can do so at www.patreon.com forward slash The Outlines Podcast. Make sure to follow me on social media if you haven't already, and all the links are in the description box below. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter. The music was composed by Elias Hardy. Thank you.